How? How fine dear Jerusalem? God does not speak to me. Not even on the hill where Christ died. I am outside God's grace. I have not heard that. At any rate, it seems I have lost my religion. I put no stock in religion. By the word religion, I've seen the lunacy of fanatics of every denomination be called the will of God. Holiness is in right action and courage on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves. And goodness. What God desires is here and here. And what you decide to do every day, you will be a good man. Not. I put no stock in religion. Um, through the years, I've, I've run into a lot of people around here that say they, they don't like organized religion. I said, then you'll like our church because we're disorganized religion. Um, we, we're not real into the religious thing because people have, uh, in the name of religion, they claim it may be God, but in the name of religion, they've done some atrocities throughout the years. When it comes to which path to choose in life, many times what we have to do is, is make a choice between a good idea, at least it sounds good to us as humans, and a God idea. Because there's a huge difference between good ideas and God ideas. Lots of people lost their lives in the Crusades because they thought it was a good idea to go back and try to win the Holy Lands back from the Muslims. And uh, history has shown us that You've got to be very careful following good ideas. You don't have to be so careful following God ideas. Because God, when He is in charge and when we follow Him, He protects us and provides for us and does things that we cannot do for ourselves. However, when we have a good idea and we try to project that onto God as a God idea, and we say, God, would you bless my good idea? God's not in that business. God's in the business of doing things that are God-sized so that God gets the glory. When human beings try to get the glory, God says, I'm out of this, you're on your own. The central focus of this, of the Crusades was what they called the kingdom of heaven, which was Jerusalem and the Holy Land. And by the way, the kingdom of heaven uh, is not Jerusalem and the Holy Land. We, we don't get that from the Bible. Because of all of the things that had, had gone on there, Jesus was born in the Holy Land in Bethlehem. He was crucified in uh, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, some folks had the idea that, that that was the kingdom of heaven. It's not. The kingdom of heaven is in another realm. It's a spiritual realm. Jesus said, my world is not, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. So um, in, in the whole idea of the Crusades, Jerusalem was taken in 1065 by the Muslim Turks. And in the, in, in the taking of Jerusalem, they massacred 3,000 Christians. 30 years later, in uh, 1095 AD, there was a pope by the name of Claremont who preached a sermon at the Council of Claremont. And I guess if you're a pope, you get to declare councils and you get to name it after yourself. Um, so someday I'm going to have a council of Doug and, and we're, we're definitely not going to go try to take the Holy Land from anybody. Um, I don't know what we're going to do, but we'll call it the, the Council of Doug. And, and you should probably not put a whole lot of stock in it because um, if it's not a God thing, then don't pay a lot of attention to the Council of Doug. But anyway, the, Pope Claremont preached a sermon at the Council of Claremont 
And after this sermon, a lot of folks got fired up. Religion became very popular. And, and folks immediately put crosses on, on their chest. And that's actually where the crusade comes from, from the French term for cross. And they were fired up to go and to win the Holy Lands back uh, from the infidels, the unfaithful Muslims. And uh, there's a term you're going to hear in this movie called Saracens. And that, that was also a term for Muslim. And uh, the, the kind of the cry of the day, uh, preachers went throughout Europe and started preaching, firing up the masses to, to leave their homes and to go and fight for God's holy land. And the term or the phrase was, God wills it. You're going to hear that in a minute in this movie as well. Now, early on in the movie, there's, there's a scene where some crusaders are heading towards Jerusalem and there's a guy crying out. And, and this really disturbed me when I first heard it. I kept rewinding it. I kept going, what's that? What's that? Killing infidels is not murder. It is the path to heaven. Now, does that sound biblical to you? Does that sound like something Jesus taught? Killing infidels is not murder. It's the path to heaven. Well, let me show you what the Bible says. Romans twelve eighteen says this. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Now, does that verse say, is, is the entirety of that verse, live at peace with everyone? Is that the entirety of the verse? No, there's a couple of things. It says that you are to do your best. You're supposed to give your, uh, your full effort to living at peace with everyone. But there's an implication that there may be times that you can't live at peace with someone. What if someone does not want to have peace with you? The implication is you do what you can. You can't control other people. So there may be times when you cannot live at peace with someone. In our nation's history, have there ever been times that we've tried to live at peace with other nations and other nations would not let us live at peace with them? What's, give me an example. Pearl Harbor, first one comes to mind. What about, what about September 11th? What about the British? There's, there's several examples where we tried to live at peace and another country would not allow us to live at peace. So what do you do then? If, if a country will not let you live at peace, how do you, how do you determine when you should go to war? What are the biblical things? What is God's idea on war? We're going to talk about those things today. In our movie, Balian, the hero, Orlando Bloom, is called before the king. Listen to what the king says is his ideals for living. Come forward. I'm glad to meet Godfrey's son. He was one of my greatest teachers. He was there when playing with the other boys, my arm was cut. And it was he, not my father's physicians, who noticed that I felt no pain. He wept when he gave my father the news that I am a leper. The Saracens say that this disease is God's vengeance against the vanity of our kingdom. As wretched as I am, these Arabs believe that the chastisement that awaits me in hell is far more severe and lasting. If that's true, I call it unfair. Come, sit. When I was 16, I won a great victory. I felt in that moment I would live to be a hundred. 
I know I shall not see thirty. You see, none of us choose our end, really. A king may move a man. A father may claim a son. But remember that even when those who move you be kings or men of power, your soul is in your keeping alone. When you stand before God, you cannot say, but I was told by others to do thus, or that virtue was not convenient at the time. This will not suffice. Remember that. I will. Then go now to your father's house at Ibelin, and from there protect the pilgrim road. Protect the helpless. And then perhaps one day, when I am helpless, you will come and protect me. Like the line, when you stand before God, you cannot say, well, I was told by others to do this. When you stand before God, it won't matter what others told you. It will matter what you've done. And he says also that none of us can choose our end. And that's true. We don't know when we're going to die, but we certainly can choose which side we're on in life. So if, if the Bible is true, if, if what I've read in here is, is accurate, I believe it is, I've read the last page and Jesus wins. So I want to be on his side. If you read scripture, you find all the time people trying to get men trying to get God on their side. And God says, I don't function that way. The question is, are you on my side? Well, I want to be on the winning side. If we go today, there's, there will be about 10,000 people at the uh, fireworks show tonight. That's what they estimate every year. Um, if we go out there and we start asking people, who is Jesus? Now, a lot of folks around here believe that Jesus was the son of God. We'd get a lot of those answers. But a lot of people would say, well, I, I don't know. He was a good teacher or he was a moral man. Now, I want you to think about that because if Jesus was lying about being God's son, is he a moral man? If he willingly, knowingly lied, is he a moral man? That's a yes or no question. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I thought that was really straightforward. So if he's telling people lies about who he was and why he came and the purpose of life and the spiritual uh, kingdom in heaven, if he's willingly telling people lies about that, he is not a moral man. He is not a good teacher. That's one option, that Jesus is a liar. There's another option, that he's a lunatic. That he's crazy. Have you ever heard of someone saying, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the son of God. Now, if he's, if he's crazy, can you describe him as a moral man and a good teacher? Do you want an insane person teaching in the schools? Yes or no? Do you want an insane person teaching your children? Yes or no? No. So if he's crazy, he's not a moral man and he's not a good teacher. So he's a liar or he's lunatic, or there's a third option. He's telling the truth, which means he's the Lord. He is the boss. If he's telling the truth, and, and by the way, you can check the evidence. There is evidence that supports that he is God's son. What would you expect God's son to be able to do? Would you expect God's son to be able to perform miracles? Sure. Would you expect God's son, the one who created the universe, to be able to raise people from the dead? He did that. He turned water into wine. He healed people not only when he touched them and said to get healed. He healed some people from a distance of 38 miles because he just spoke the word and they were healed. 
But then the greatest evidence of all that he was God's son, that he is who he says he is, is that they laid him in a tomb and three days later he came back from the dead never to die again. So there's evidence that supports who Jesus is. There's no evidence that he was a lunatic. There's no evidence that he ever lied to people. There's tons of evidence that he's the Lord. So if there's evidence that he's the Lord, smart people would search out that evidence and give their lives to following the real king. He said, I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That means he's above all. And the Bible says there will be a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Whether you believe it or not is not the issue. The issue is, is he who he says he is? If he's who he says he is, then we better pay attention to what he says because there will be a day when we will stand before him face to face. And you can't say, well, my parents said this or my friend said this, or my priest or my preacher said this, God's going to say, what did you do with my son who is the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords? What did you do with him? That's the final exam. And if he's telling the truth, we better pay attention to what he has to say. So let's open up God's word. Let's look at what God has to say about war. In Ecclesiastes 3.8, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote, There is a time to love and a time to hate. There is a time for war and a time for peace. Oh, but wait, 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 wait. I thought Jesus was a pacifist. Wasn't Jesus all peace and love and goodwill all the time? Well, he was peace and love and goodwill, but I don't think he was a pacifist. When you study the ministry of Jesus, you'll see that he never once told a Roman soldier to leave the military and to follow him. If Jesus was a true pacifist, every time he saw a military man, he'd say, dude, what you're doing is wrong. You need to come follow me. You need to get out of the army. Jesus never did that. He never once said it was morally wrong for them to be in the service. In fact... At the end, uh, when he's talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, they're like, Jesus, when are we going to know that you're coming back? Because Jesus said, I'm the son of God. He died. He came back from the grave. He left and he said, I'm going to come back. So they said, well, what, what are the signs? And Jesus said, well, first of all, you got to understand, there is going to be war all the way up until I come back. Until the prince of peace comes and gives peace on this earth, there are going to be wars. And during the 6,000 year history of, of humans on this planet, The world has averaged two and a half wars per year. He said, that's just going to keep on happening. There's going to be wars until I come back. But he says, but I don't believe he was a pacifist and I don't believe he taught that. Twice in the New Testament, Jesus comes into the temple, which is God's house. Now, he, he did this. It was premeditated. One time he comes in, he sees what's going on. There's some folks in there um, making way too much profit, insane, obscene profit in the, in the temple because they were, people would have to come and have to buy sacrifices. And so they were making way too much profit off that. Jesus walks in, sees it, leaves, goes to Bethany, comes back the next day. And the Bible says that he drove out the money changers with whips. He made whips, went in, and he didn't say, Oh, pretty please, with sugars on top, would you leave my father's house? Dude had a whip and knew how to use it. And people were running. Because the Bible tells us that zeal for God's house consumed him. Someone walks in here with a whip and starts whipping it around. Y'all are going to head for the exits, right? Jesus was no mamby-pamby dude. He didn't sit around and consider his navel all the time. He didn't do that trash. 
He was a man of action. And he didn't say, if you don't leave, I'm going to go on a hunger strike. I won't eat again until you leave my father's house. No. But you got to understand, Jesus saw that we were fighting a, a spiritual battle in a physical world. And so his bigger battle, his bigger plans involve this spiritual battle that are being carried out in the lives of human beings. Bible says our war really isn't against each other. It says we war against spirits, principalities of another realm. And Jesus knew that, but he knew he had to carry out that battle sometimes in the physical realm. His action was always with a purpose to fight this spiritual battle that's being played out in front of our eyes. So we got to remember that the most important battle is not physical, it's spiritual. And if we're engaged in this, this war, we better make sure that we're following God and not a good idea. A God idea, not a good idea. Now in this next scene, there's this big deal where the king has, has peace with the Saracens, with the Muslims. And there are certain people in the kingdom that, that, that don't think you should ever have peace with someone who doesn't believe the same way you do. Watch what happens in this scene. Reynaud de Chatillon, with the Templars, have attacked the Saracen cavalry. It was no caravan. It was an army headed for Bethlehem to desecrate the birthplace of our Lord. Reynaud, with the Templars, have broken the king's pleasure of peace. Saladin will come into this kingdom. Tiberius knows more than a Christian should about Saladin's intention. I would rather live with men than kill them. It's certainly why you are alive. That sort of Christianity has its uses, I suppose. We must not go to war with Saladin. We do not want it, and we may not win it. Blasphemy! An army of Jesus Christ which bears his holy cross cannot be beaten. This account of Tiberius suggests that it could be. There must be war. God wills it! God wills it! God wills it! Okay, so let me get this straight. If you paint a cross on your chest and you go out to battle, there's no way you can lose, right? Isn't that what he said? An army of Jesus Christ who bears his cross cannot be defeated in battle. Have you read the Old Testament? Ever seen God's chosen people get defeated? Because they would go to war with a good idea, not a God idea. Good idea, oh, we want that land. We want to expand our territory. You go out and God says, you're on your own. Now, any time that God said, go to war, and people went to war, God's team won. Any time that humans said, we should go to war and not consult the God of the universe, they lost. And in this movie, they lose big time. And, and any time there was uh, a discussion that, that someone didn't like, so the people who were, were on this side saying, we've got to go to war. God wills that we go to war. And if you say, well, you know, if we go to this war, we might not win it. Blasphemy, blasphemy. So God wills it was the rallying cry for all of these folks to go and try to win back the holy land. Problem was, I'm not sure that it was a God idea because a lot of folks lost their lives pursuing something that I don't necessarily believe came from God. Well, all right. 
So you've said that, God, that Jesus isn't a pacifist, that there are times to go to war. When are those times? Let's very quickly run through these. First, we go to war in order to preserve freedom. Now, the whole purpose in, uh, of a lot of these people in this movie was they wanted fame, they wanted land, they wanted to have their own war, and so they go out to war and they die. They're slaughtered. It's a bad deal in the movie. They were not God ideas. God's very clear about when we should go to war. In the Old Testament, one time there was a group of people called the Midianites. The Midianites were, were started off actually uh, as decent people, but because they started uh, assimilating the, the other lowercase gods, the, the lowercase g, the idols from other uh, countries surrounding them, they became these despicable folks. One of their practices was they would take babies and they would burn them in the fire as part of their worship to appease their gods. They were ruthless in war. They didn't care anything about justice. They would wipe people out. So God says to Israel through Moses, he says, go and destroy the Midianites. He says, I want them wiped out because God didn't want their their horrible worship practices infiltrating the Israelites. He also didn't want their, their practices of war to infiltrate the Israelites. So he says, wipe them out. And there are two tribes. There were 12 tribes in Israel. There were two who didn't go to war. And the Bible tells us in Numbers 32 that God gets angry at these two tribes who would not go to war. And Moses says to them, What are you doing? Are you just going to sit here while your brothers go to war? God had commanded them to go to war. Two of them said, we're going to sit this one out. And God says, wrong idea. And they suffered the consequences because of that. You see, what we've got to do is we've got to decide what's worth dying for. If we don't know what's worth dying for, you don't know what's worth living for. And so there are times that we fight to preserve freedom. Second, in order to defend innocent people. Second reason that the Bible says to, to go to war is to defend innocent people. Proverbs twenty one fifteen says, Good people celebrate when justice triumphs, but for the workers of evil, it's a bad day. I like that translation. I highlighted the word justice for you. We are not just interested in peace. We're interested in peace with justice. Have you noticed that, that really bad men don't generally respond to nice little gestures? For example, dictators... If you're nice to a dictator, does that make him be nice to you? If your country is nice to a dictator, does that make him be nice to you? No. Bad men actually get worse in the presence of what they consider weakness. Peace at any price is not peace, it's appeasement. Bible says God is, is not only a God of peace, but he's also a God of justice. There are two sides of the same coin. Things should be done right. And you've heard this saying, all that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Justice requires action. What was it that drew us into World War II? What was it that got us off of the fence because we tried to be neutral? Pearl Harbor. What was it that got us off of, of our backsides after September 11th? Innocent people were murdered in the name of of religion. And we rose up to action. Sometimes it is right to go to war. John Stuart Mill said, a man who has nothing which he is willing to fight for, nothing which he cares about more than his personal safety, is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free. Sit around with some, some war veterans. Listen to the stories they tell. 
And you'll understand that freedom is not free. Although we take it for granted, granted, it is not free. It costs a bunch. There's a third reason we go to war, and that's in order to stop the spread of evil. Now, the Bible is very, very clear on this in Romans chapter 13 that we are supposed to respect the governing authorities because God allows the governing authorities for a reason. Look at Romans 13:4. The authorities are sent by God to help you. But if you're doing something wrong, of course you, you should be afraid, for you will be punished. The authorities are established by God for that very purpose, to punish those who do wrong. So it says, if you are obeying the law, you don't have a reason to fear. Have you ever gotten one of those little notices in the mail from the IRS? Anyone? And, and you have that little twinge of fear thinking, oh no, what did I do wrong? Or worse, if you know you did something wrong... There is a lot of fear because you can be in serious trouble. Or what about when you're driving down the highway and you see those red lights in your rearview mirror? You go by the policeman, the law enforcer, and, and he turns around and he flips on his lights. There's a little twinge of fear in your heart until he goes around you. Or so I've heard. I've never experienced that myself. I've just heard you all talk about it. Right? Aren't you relieved when the policeman pulls someone else over? If you're doing the speed limit, which I always do, you do not have to fear, Mr. Law Enforcement. What are you all laughing about? Gravity takes over on those hills sometimes. I can't, I can't help gravity. If you're doing right, you don't have to fear the government. But if you're doing wrong, the Bible says you should have fear. Because God established governing authorities to carry out justice. Now, some people have argued and they said, doesn't the sixth commandment, okay, ten commandments, doesn't the sixth commandment say, do not commit murder? Yes. But we've quoted it as, do not kill. Doesn't the sixth commandment say, you shall not kill? Nope. The word is murder. Forty-seven times in the Bible, this term is used, and it's murder. There is a difference between killing and murder. C.S. Lewis says this, all killing is no more murder than all sexual intercourse is adultery. Is all sexual intercourse adultery? No, not in marriage. God created sexual intercourse. It's in marriage. It is a good thing. All killing is not murder. There is a difference. And our courts recognize the difference. There's self-defense. You come in my house... Uninvited at night, I have a Glock 40 caliber with 13 rounds in two different clips. You will meet him. Cause the, and that, I would not go to jail for that if you come breaking in my house. Someone tries to mess with my family, we will not have peace. I can defend my family. That's what our nation says. So don't jack around at my house after dark. I've actually had someone kick in my door before in, in Arlington, Texas. Long story that I won't share here, but some have heard the story. That's why they're giggling. But, well, I ran after the dude, and then my wife is the smart one. She has the shotgun. She's calling 911 and loading the shotgun in the bathroom while I'm running after the dude. So when I get my senses, then I come back and get the shotgun. But since then, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Since then, if the alarm goes off, the first thing I do is get my firearm. 
So don't jack around at my house. That's the story of that. That's self-defense. There is a difference between killing and murder. And the Bible says that we're not supposed to murder. Tenth com- uh, sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. There is a huge, huge difference. So when is it right to fight? To bring about justice, to preserve freedom, to reduce evil in the world. Now in our movie, it has come time to fight. It has come time when, when they cannot be passive anymore. They're in Jerusalem. The Muslims are surrounding them. And, and I want you to watch what happened. My Lord, my Lord. How are we to defend Jerusalem without knights? We have no knights. Truly. What is your condition? I'm servant of the Patriarch. He's uh, one of my servants. Is he? You were born a servant. Neil. Every man at arms, or capable of bearing them. Neil! On your knees! Be without fear in the face of your enemies. Be brave and upright that God may love me. Speak the truth, even if it leads to your death. Safeguard the helpless. That is your oath. And that is so you remember it. Rise at night! Rise and night! Who do you think you are? Will you alter the world? Just making a man a knight, make him a better fighter. Yes. Yeah, dramatic. Use of music there. Does making a man a knight make him a better fighter? Yes. No, it doesn't. Sorry, that's Hollywood. I think knowing why you fight and knowing when to fight makes you a better fighter. These folks were surrounded and, and they were told, if you lay down your arms, your wives and your children will be slaughtered. They will be massacred. There will be no prisoners taken. And I like his oath there, his, his knight's oath, is, is to defend the helpless. Speak the truth, even if it costs you your life. There's some good stuff there. Knowing why to fight and knowing when to fight makes you a better fighter. Because war actually reveals what is in a man's heart. If you go to war, be sure that God has led you there. Because if you claim that, that an army of Jesus Christ can't be beaten... Then, then you're wrong unless they were called there by God. Does that make sense? War reveals who you are. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, hero of the Battle of Gettysburg, said, War makes bad men worse and good men better. Now, I've read all kinds of stories about people in war. World War II, I've read a lot about that, heard a lot of stories. Let me, let me just give you two quick examples from World War II of war revealing what was in a man's heart. 
July 31st, 1943, Roger Young was pinned down with the rest of his reconnaissance, reconnaissance patrol by a Japanese machine gun on New Georgia's, one of the, New Georgia, one of the Solomon Islands. Slow down. They, the cleverly laid ambush had already killed four soldiers, and since there was virtually no hope of rescue, it appeared that the rest of the patrol would soon be cut to pieces. Young, who had recently requested a demotion to private because he was losing his hearing, began to inch forward toward the machine gun nest. His lieutenant barked at him to stay put. Young kept going, jerking himself out of the officer's grasp. He soon came under withering fire that nearly cut off his legs. In extreme agony, Young kept crawling within five yards of the machine gun where he found a small depression that sheltered him from the rain of bullets. With his last gasp of strength, Young pulled out a grenade, pulled the pin, then reared up and back, bringing himself out of the protection of the ground. A blast of machine gun fire caught him full in the face, killing him just as he released the grenade. But his aim was true. The grenade landed squarely in the middle of the machine gun nest, killing every enemy soldier. The thin, pale, bespectacled young had saved the rest of his patrol. February 7th, 1943. Submarine uh, skipper Howard Gilmore was on routine patrol in the South Pacific. After ramming a Japanese ship, his submarine suffered heavy damage and was being destroyed by the ship's machine gun fire. Two sailors had already been killed. And Gilmore was badly wounded on the conning, the observation tower. Unable to make it to the hatch, Gilmore did the only thing he thought he could do to save his crew. Despite the protests of his officers and crew, he ordered the sub to dive, leaving himself to die on the surface. Howard Gilmore had died in order to save 69 crew members. Young and Gilmore both received the Congressional Medal of Honor, America's highest military honor. And criteria for this honor are unquestionably strict. The act in question must have been witnessed by at least two eyewitnesses. It must be distinguishable above other acts of gallantry and involve the risk of one's own life. This is such a prestigious honor and, and the circumstances surrounding it are so severe that almost 66% of the people who received the honor were not alive to receive the honor. They received it posthumously after their death. And according to revered military custom, everyone, including generals, must rise and salute any winner of the medal. The salute shows the respect for the man, the medal, and the deed. But why do we respect such acts of heroism? What is it that resonates inside of us that we see someone or we hear a story and it moves us because of the courage and because of the self-sacrifice. A couple of reasons. I think that one, we understand that giving of, of your life is the ultimate act, ultimate demonstration that you love someone else more than you love yourself. And that moves us. But actually, I think that was put inside of us by God. Because when someone gives their life for someone else, it points us to the ultimate sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen, the greatest love a person can show is to die for his friends. Men and women have been demonstrating their love for our country, for our freedom for over 200 years. They're still doing it today. And we need to honor those folks who've given their all and the folks that are serving today to make us a free country. You see, God has a purpose for your life here on earth, but it's not just for here and now. God's purposes last forever. You'll spend just a few decades on this planet, 
God offers you not just an opportunity of a lifetime, but God offers you an opportunity beyond this lifetime. The cause of spiritual freedom and the consequences of spiritual freedom live on after your life on earth is done. It's one of, my, one of the reasons I've invested my life in this church is I believe in the cause of spiritual freedom even more than I do physical freedom. What we're doing matters. So when you go and you watch fireworks or you shoot off fireworks tonight, I want you to remember the cost of freedom. I want you to remember stories that you've heard of people sacrificing so that we could have freedom. But I want you to remember there is a battle that we are still waging and it's a spiritual battle. If there are 10,000 people at the fireworks tonight in, in Palestine, and if the averages hold true in Palestine that are true throughout our nation, 9,000 people out there watching fireworks tonight are going to be enslaved spiritually. And the saddest thing is most of them don't even know it. And they're not going to know it unless you and I invest our lives in them and help them understand that spiritual freedom matters forever. Jesus Christ gave that ultimate sacrifice. He said the ultimate sacrifice is for you to lay down your life for your friends. Jesus gave the sacrifice so that you and I could be enlisted in his army, fight a spiritual battle. When we die, we go to heaven. But part of our standing before God I think he's going to wonder how many people we brought with us into heaven. And so my question for you today on our Independence Day is will you join a fight that matters for eternity? I'm not asking you to go to Jerusalem, put a cross on your chest. But I am asking you to join a battle Who's going to do it? If not you, who?